Let us now turn for our scripture reading to Second Chronicles chapter 17. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. And he placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, had fought, his father, had taken. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat, and he had riches and honor in abundance, and his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. Also in the third year of his reign, he sent his leaders, Ben-Hale, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathanael, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them he sent Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zebediah, Azahel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, the Levites, and with them Elishama and Jehoram the priests. So they taught in Judah, and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Also some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver as tribute. And the Arabians brought them him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. So Jehoshaphat became increasingly powerful, and he built fortresses and storage cities in Judah. He had much property in the cities of Judah, and the men of war, mighty men of valor, were in Jerusalem. These are their numbers according to their fathers' houses. Of Judah, the captains of thousands... Adna, the captain, and with him 300,000 mighty men of valor. And next to him was Jehohanan, the captain, and with him 280,000. And next to him was Amasiah, the son of Zikri, who willingly offered himself to the Lord, and with him 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor, and with him 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him was Jehozabad, and with him 180,000 prepared for war. These served the king, besides those the king put in the fortified cities throughout all Judah. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're continuing this morning with sermons on uh, some of the kings of Judah. And we've come to uh, Jehoshaphat, who is the son of Asa. And uh, Jehoshaphat was among the, the good and godly kings over God's people. And there are common features of these kings that's described in quite uh, similar language with respect to the good and godly kings. It's often said that they did right in the eyes of the Lord, and often that uh, they walked after the pattern of David, David David is often referred to as the model king, which uh, the good and righteous uh, kings of, uh, of Judah emulated. Each of them also added something more to the outline, uh, the faint sketch, if you will, 
of the kind of king that God would eventually provide for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I began to reflect on uh, Jehoshaphat, I uh, asked the question, what is there about Jehoshaphat that uh, we might highlight as something that uh, is outstanding uh, to his character, outstanding in the account of his reign over Judah? Well, certainly there are a, a number of very fascinating, interesting uh, stories that we're going to consider. But it also occurred to me that Joshua seems to be especially marked by devotion uh, to the good of the people over whom he ruled. Uh, there's not a hint of selfishness uh, or a kind of uh, laziness or worldly ambition in the record that is given to him. But rather, he truly served God's people. It appears that he actively loved them and uh, and also then was loved by them in return. In fact, you might even say that this open-heartedness of uh, Jehoshaphat is such a, an attractive strength, uh, but it also, uh, in a sense, uh, became a weakness. Uh, he loved and cared for people. He had a kind of open heart, even to a fault, you might say. His heart for others seemed also to make him a bit too optimistic and uh, too naive about entering into relationships that were actually unfriendly to his faith and unfriendly to his responsibilities as as king of Judah. And they proved to be relationships that were harmful to himself as as well as to others, and we'll also see that in this account. But yet it's fair to describe Jehoshaphat as a godly king and as a godly king who cared for God's people. And so we're going to begin our consideration of this this king uh, under the theme, the Lord established the kingdom in Jehoshaphat's hand. That's language that is taken from this chapter, and especially in those verses that describe the way that he walked. He walked in the Lord's ways. And uh, that certainly is a key to the fact that God established his kingdom. We read in verse 3, Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. There are a number of uh, characteristics of Jehoshaphat spelled out in these uh, opening verses. We're told that he sought the God of his father. And that uh, is a reference to Asa. But again, it uh, has a, a broader application with respect to godly kings that went before him. Among them, David is mentioned specifically. It says he walked uh, according to the former ways of David. Some translators uh, have this, the first ways of David, perhaps suggesting that uh, the first part of David's reign was more illustrious in terms of his faithfulness to the Lord than some aspects of the latter part of his reign. But in any case, Jehoshaphat was a godly king who sought the God of his father. And to seek the Lord is a matter of, of prayer at the very least. And Jehoshaphat was a man of prayer. In fact, one of the longer recorded prayers of any of the kings of, uh, of Judah is recorded for us in chapter 20, and we'll give attention to that prayer when we when we get to that point. 
But among the things that Jehoshaphat said in prayer are these words, We have no power. Our eyes are upon you. That's when he and the people were facing a great threat from neighboring countries. And he acknowledges that he has no power. And that's really interesting in light of what we're going to consider of him in this chapter before us. But it it indicates how completely he entrusted in God. He inquired after God's will. He cared about God's word. He cared about uh, what prophets had to say. And he cared about the true worship of God, not only for himself, but for others. He did not seek the Baals. And we're also told that uh, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. He was concerned to restore the pure worship of God, even perhaps to go farther than his uh, father Asa with respect to removing high places. He kept God's commandments. That likewise is language that describes him. He walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. You know that the kings, uh, even before uh, kings began to rule over God's people. The description of godly kings is spelled out in the, the book of Deuteronomy. When a king would be set over them, it would be whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then it describes uh, the king in this way. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And then it says this, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. We actually have given another uh, description of uh, a godly ruler over people in the last words of, of David in uh, this song that uh, he composed. And among uh, the verses of this song, uh, we read, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That shows the blessing of a, of a godly king, a one who rules over men in justice and ultimately appoints to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, that language, uh, describes the refreshing saving work of the Lord Jesus as we hear in Psalm 72. But the point here is that, uh, the kings of God's people were to be law keepers. And, uh, and that is to be the aspiration of all who would exercise authority in a way that honors God and is a blessing to others. That passage in Samuel speaks in very general terms. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Jehoshaphat was a law keeper. 
And the fact is uh, that leadership in any position in the church or in the state or in the workplace exercises tremendous influence by example. It's huge. And Jehoshaphat led others by his walk as well as by his public works and by his laws. And it appears that uh, his example indeed was effective also in terms of uh, producing a response of respect uh, and love from from the people. Verse 5 concludes that with the statement that uh, all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat. He had riches and honor and abundance. And that seems to be an expression of the, the esteem with which he was held in the eyes of the people. They gave presents to him. And then thirdly, he delighted in the Lord's ways. He delighted. We want to emphasize that. Verse 6 says, And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Actually, a literal rendering of this would be, And his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Which actually, in terms of the language, presents a contrast with uh, the king whose heart would be lifted up with pride. The kings were not to be lifted up with pride. They're not to exalt in themselves. They're not to be uh, uh, filled with a kind of courage or a kind of joy based upon themselves, but rather to be filled with courage and delight and joy in God's ways. And that's what describes Jehoshaphat here. His heart was lifted up. He was not simply dutiful in God's ways. Uh, he was He was passionate in God's lead. Ways. And often in the account that before us we will see that Jehoshaphat is in the lead. Jehoshaphat is in the lead, publicly bowing his head, his face to the ground after hearing the word of God. We'll hear him stir up the people like a preacher, like a, a preacher king saying, believe in the Lord and you will be established. Believe in his prophets and you shall prosper. He exhorted and admonished the people to trust in God. We'll see him appointing singers to lead, to lead God's army by praising the beauty of holiness. He had a heart for God. That was the case with David. That was the case with all godly uh, kings. Asa, his heart was loyal to the Lord. Isn't that just critical for what it means to know and to love God? It's a matter of the heart. If we don't have a heart for his service, we need our hearts renewed. Or perhaps we need new hearts. Because the love of God and the service of God and his people is a matter of the heart. And that was evident in Jehoshaphat's reign. And uh, and here we see the beauty of the Lord upon him. Here we see the, the spirit of Christ at work in this godly king. And in this way, even, even his example, and there are many characteristics of Jehoshaphat that direct our thoughts to our true Savior and King who came to do God's will, whose law was in his heart, and he loved and served God's people. Jehoshaphat walked in the Lord's ways. And secondly, we want to consider that Jehoshaphat ordered the teaching of God's law. In verses 7 and following, we read, also in the third year of his reign, he sent his teachers. And then it gets, uh, gives a list of teachers. Apparently, these were, these were uh, princes. They were officials of his kingdom. And then with them, he sent Levites and a few priests. And so they taught in Judah 
and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. And they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, we have a, a sad description of what happens when God's appointed leaders don't do their job. And it says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Jehoshaphat did what he could to avoid that. Joshua did what he could to, to remedy that. And he enlisted the service of the Levites because that was actually uh, their task. That was part of their job description, not only to look after the temple and its uh, service and implements, but they were to go throughout the cities of Judah and to teach all of Jacob, all of Israel, God's commandments. You can read about that in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 33 and verse 10 specifically and others, other passages. Their concern was that everyone would know God's law, that they would know God's will. Think of how central this teaching ministry is to the commission that Christ has given uh, to the church. The Great Commission, it's called, right? And Jesus said, all authority is given to me. He is an exalted king. And how is that kingship exercised? He sends his servants to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's just crucial to the advance of the gospel. That is crucial to the life and the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. We must always remember this. Knowing what the Bible actually says is essential. And it takes a lot of effort because it does not happen automatically. It does not happen Easily, it does not happen quickly, quickly. It happens over a period of time of line upon line, precept upon precept, repetition, repetition, catechizing. That's just crucial. I use the word catechizing. And uh, when I say that word, we might think simply of, of the catechism, right? Which has the questions and answers that gives us a summary of the faith. And yeah, that's a tremendous tool. But the idea of catechizing involves teaching by way of question and answer. Question and answer. And that's what takes place in our Sunday school classes. The teachers ask the children questions. And hopefully they ask questions that the children know. At least they should start that way. Because children take great pleasure in answering questions that they know. And we want to build on that in all our church education classes. And parents want to take uh, a hand in that, a responsibility for that, right? We read, we read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, how parents are called to teach their children when they sit in their house, when they walk by the way. And when we read that uh, description of our calling as parents, uh, then, then it's nice to sing a psalm of repentance afterwards because we fail in that. But acknowledging our fault uh, should not be the end of the story, but we should continually to make that effort. I encourage you, fathers and mothers, there should be some time when you try to actually find out what your kids know. I trust you read the scriptures in your home. Mealtime is the most convenient time to do that. Combine that with asking a few questions. In fact, it might be useful for uh, you fathers to take some time and compose a list of questions just to kind of test your kids to see how much they know. Find out how much they're learning in Sunday school. Do they know the Bible stories? Do they know basic questions? You might be surprised 
hopefully, at how much they know. But it's possible that you might be surprised at how much they don't know. That you just assume that they know because you know it. Because you've been taught it when you were a kid. It's been drilled into you. But if it's not drilled into your children, they're not going to know it. Catechizing involves questioning them and hearing their answers and being assured that they are, that they are learning. Be committed to the teaching ministry of the church. You have a first responsibility, but there's other contexts in which we have to fulfill this calling and being committed to uh, the teaching ministry of the church, the church education programs, the Wednesday night classes, if you are all able to do that, the second service. It's the second worship service of the Sunday that involves you recognize a systematic, structured teaching of the whole counsel of God. And that's why we use the catechism or the confessions to ensure that all the important things of uh, the teaching of God's Word are regularly covered, at least in a summary way. So if your children are able, come to the second service. Make it a priority. You don't want to rob yourself of half of the official teaching ministry of the church, which especially is from the pulpit. In times of Reformation, look at the history of the Protestant Reformation and what devotion there was to teaching the Word of God. Consider the fact that in Geneva, every other week, there were sermons six days a week. People would come before work to listen to a sermon. Well, there's many ways in which we apply this principle, but it is of, of crucial importance. Joshua showed his care for the people by teaching them. And in this way, Josh, but also is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that he taught the people. Jesus taught the people. This also has something to say about the role of government today. We talked about the church, the family. But Jehoshaphat's practice here has something to say about the role of civil government. To teach. Now, that might sound surprising to some of you. In fact, some of you may have heard the slogan, it's not the responsibility of the state to teach, to teach morality. Oh, really? The state has no responsibility to teach people not to steal, not to kill, not to commit adultery, not to bear false witness. The, the, the state has no responsibility to promote what is right and good and just for the order and the good of society. They're not supposed to legislate morality. Well, they seem to be pretty willing to legislate immorality. It's really one of the or the other, isn't it? Laws teach. Because laws are not simply enacted, but laws are explained. Laws are justified. Laws are promoted. And laws have a tremendous effect upon the consciences and the lifestyles of the governed. I was reminded of a tremendous example of this. Uh, I wouldn't say in recent history, although it has recent developments. You know, it's been 50 years. I'm sorry if I make allusion to politics in the U.S. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in what's happening here in this country. But this is especially valuable and useful illustration of the point. It's about 50 years ago that the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion in all 50 states. And they did so not on the basis of law. They were activist judges who invented, who fabricated from the principle of the, of the privacy, the right of privacy, some kind of right to abortion. And that was at a time where the majority of Americans did not favor 
abortion. We're not in favor of this. Fifty years ago. And since then, yes, pro-life movements, Christians have been active in witnessing against this, trying to bring about laws that would restrict abortions on the state level, many of them very successful, very effective. Laws that prohibited the government from taxing people for funding abortions. And then you know that last year, Roe versus Wade, that that decision that legalized abortion in all 50 states was overturned by the Supreme Court. A great victory for the sanctity of life. Something that uh, Christians have prayed for and worked for for years. But that means it's back to the states to deal with this issue. But you know what's happened since then? There are a number, and, and, and we can fear that there are an increasing number of states that are hardening their position in favor of abortion, some of them without restrictions whatsoever. How could that be? Well, because the law effectively taught for 50 years and kids were raised in schools and went to universities where abortion was treated as a human right. It was a matter of caring for women and their well-being. And it's described in terms of health care. And that has had a tremendous effect upon shaping the values of people. And so that majority that was once opposed to it, well, that's gone. And sadly, the effectiveness of this immoral law teaching has proven. Why is there a proliferation of all kinds of uh, perverse sexual identities and practices and behaviors? Why has the sexual revolution been so successful? Well, because there have been laws that teach immorality, no-fault divorce laws, making it easy to get a divorce for whatever cause. A fabricated law sanctioning so-called same-sex marriage. That's teaching immorality. It's saying that homosexual fornication is a good. It is a right that ought to be celebrated and protected. And on and on and on it goes. Is it any wonder that statistically the numbers of people that practice and identify as homosexual, transgender, and every other kind of sexual kind of deviation is on the increase? It's because these laws are effective. They no longer serve to restrain sin. And so when young people have desires that are deviant, they neither have uh, laws nor uh, conscience that's been shaped to help them to say, no, no, I don't want to go there. But they live in a world in which these things are celebrated and promoted as an expression of your own freedom and rights to pleasure yourself however you wish. And so young people, they start dabbling in deviant behavior. And it's the very nature of sin to take a hold of people. And pretty soon they're enslaved to it. And they identify themselves in terms of that enslavement to sin that is a reflection of a society that has promoted and legislated and taught immorality of various kinds. It's the responsibility of the state to uphold what is right and true and good because laws teach Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. 
That's a universal. And so, yes, there is something to say here about the role of civil government. And certainly throughout the history of Reformed thinking and teaching, it's been understood that the Old Testament also provides principles from which we derive wisdom, not simply in the church, but in society as a whole. When Jehoshaphat made sure that the, the people were taught, he sent out Levites, but it's as if his officials were there by authority of the state, ensuring that it was done. The state cannot avoid teaching by its laws in the way that they're defended, justified, promoted. And those laws will be good, reflective of God's law, or they'll be bad, and they will promote immorality. Joshua ordered the teaching of God's law. Thirdly, Joshua strengthened Judah's defenses because of the depravity of the human race. Going back to that passage in, in Hosea chapter 4, the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away. When you read that list of characteristics that prevailed in uh, Israel at that time, you see what an apt description it is of the society of the day in which we live. Because of the depravity of the human race, there is the need for the teaching of God's law. Because of the depravity of the human race, there is a need of, of civil government that rewards those who do well and punish those who do evil. Because of the depravity of the human race. You know that those are the opening words of the Belgic Confession, Article 36, on civil government. We believe because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good and being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God. The civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. Because of the depravity of human race, that's the, the reason for civil government given there. And that means, brothers and sisters, that knowing the sinful tendency of people is important for knowing what good government is and knowing what good government does. It's spelled out there in Belgian Confession, according to Romans 13. It's for the restraint of sin. Good laws restrain sinners within a country from sin. And good defenses, right? Because God has placed the sword in the hand of the civil magistrate. Good defenses also restrain sinners coming against you from outside, coming from without. In the opening verses of chapter 17, we read, he placed or he strengthened himself against Israel. He placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. He fortified the country against Israel. Why? To go to war against Israel? No. To protect themselves 
against an attack by Israel. Israel being the northern tribes, you understand. He built up his military greatly against all comers. He built fortresses and cities for supplies. He had vast numbers of mighty men with him in Jerusalem and in fortified cities. We're given a list there, a count, that comes close to 1.2 million men. And uh, these are besides those that were stationed in these fortresses. And they're organized under captains of thousands, including men like Amasiah, who willingly offered him himself uh, to the Lord. And so we have a rather extensive description of Jehoshaphat's endeavors to improve the defenses of Judah. And you'll note that there's not one word of disapproval for his action. Peace through strength. Peace through strength is a biblical principle when it comes down to the role of civil government. Because strength is a deterrent. The strength to punish evildoers within a country is a deterrent to committing evil because there are consequences. Because a matter is not executed speedily, there the hearts of, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are bent on evil. When crime has no consequences, crime proliferates. So strength or peace through strength is biblical with respect to the internal affairs of a country. It's also true with respect to national defense to deter those who would otherwise attack the country or to defeat them if they do attack the country. Jehoshaphat was a godly king. And again, if you look at the description of other godly kings in Israel, whether it's Josiah or Hezekiah, you'll see the same kind of activity. They were marked also by seeking to literally protect God's people by physical defenses. And again, that has something uh, to, to, to teach about the role of civil government. I think that's been implied in what I've already said. But that does not mean that Christians look to the state for their ultimate security. Because Jehoshaphat didn't do that. And we're also told in this chapter where the real source of his uh, security comes from. In verse 10 it says, And the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Yeah, Jehoshaphat built up the defenses of, of, uh, of Judah. And that might have been a factor in the fear of God that the Lord put in the hearts of the surrounding people. But that in itself doesn't necessarily deter people from attack. God is sovereign in these things as well. And so we are to trust him. The Lord blessed uh, Jehoshaphat, and he established the kingdom in his hand. And in this way, God was showing his love for his people. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. From the Psalm 20. Hmm? Expresses the faith of David also. Expresses the, the faith of other godly kings, as we've already seen. And it was characteristic of Jehoshaphat's faith as well, as we will see. The way of faith. When we hear the description of uh, Jehoshaphat as a godly leader, we may may long for such a leader over the land in which we live and which we love. And we may and might pray for uh, good leadership. We're to uphold what's right and good. Protect those who do well. And we may be sadly disappointed in what we see about about us in the world today. We may even be fearful. 
And yes, we are to continue to pray for those in authority over us. And the church has a role of bearing testimony to the, the task of civil governments and to take action where they can according to their calling to promote these things. But ultimately, we ought not to put our security in civil government or in kings. Some trust in princes. We're not to put our trust in princes. Well, we're to put our trust in one prince, one king, who's king over all now, who's ruler of the nations, as head over all things for the church. And we're secure in him. He loved the people. He loves his people. He is our defense. He's the perfect example for us to follow in terms of what's most important for us. He is the one who protects us, who secures our eternal safety. He's the one who teaches us effectively by his spirit. He's the one who died for us and rose again. Rejoice, the Lord is king. That was ultimately Jehoshaphat's security and that of his people. And that ultimately is our joy and our security as well. Amen.